Our Father, we come before you this day, and since it has pleased you to make your will known through your holy word, we pray that you would enable us to receive your word with humility and to feel its power that we might be transformed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. This we ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Before we... uh, got too much stuff up here. Before we begin, I'd like to, well, I'd like to begin our message this morning with a reading from the Gospels. And this is, um, this is the words of Jesus. And um, I'll be reading from Luke chapter 12. I'll begin with verse 16. Jesus said this, and he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. We come to Daniel chapter 5. We are coming to a chapter that deals with judgment. And I make no apologies for teaching a lesson on judgment. It is here in Scripture. Last week we talked about grace. But we can only talk about grace. Grace from what? What has God given us grace for? He has given us forgiveness for what? Forgiveness of sins from what? Today we're going to see the other side. Today we will see judgment on a man by the name of Belshazzar. We need to understand that God holds accountable all of his creation. And he has given certain individuals authority and power and he will hold people accountable. He will hold you accountable uh, for your actions as well. So if you will, join me in Daniel chapter 5. As I read through this chapter, then I will spend a little bit of time dealing with this incredibly fascinating passage of text. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. This is the word of God. Belshazzar the king held a great feast For a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the finger of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. 
Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and the solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now, I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, and that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, and glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men from every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling was, place was like that of the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of this house before you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and of iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and has put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Our Father, we come before you, and I pray that you would give us wisdom to understand your word. I pray that you would enable me, Lord God, to speak clearly that which you have put um, upon my heart to declare to these people. Lord God, I pray that we would all be sensitive to your word, that we would take it seriously, that we would not spurn what you have spoken to us, Lord God. And I pray that you would give us your spirit and fill us with your spirit, that we might know not only what you say, Lord God, but that you would give us a heart to obey it. These things we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord. Well, we come now to chapter 5, and you may have noticed that chapter 5 is a kind of a big change has taken place. If you are paying attention, you'll notice that this happened in the time when Belshazzar was king. Now, if you've been reading along with us, you'll say, well, wait a second, who is this Belshazzar? We've not heard of him before. Who's the king before him? 
Nebuchadnezzar. So chapter 1 through 4, we're talking about this guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And all of a sudden, in chapter 5, we get Belshazzar as a king. So naturally you're thinking, well, something's happened. We got a new king. I wonder what's gone on between the time of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Has there been any significant changes? Hmm, I wonder what might be going on. So let me... Before I really get into the text, let me give you the setting of chapter 5. Because I really think that in order for us to accurately understand what's going on in chapter 5, we need to know the background. And if we're going, so in order to interpret chapter 5 properly, we need to know what's going on. And if we are going to draw a relevant application for us, um, we need to understand what's going on in the background, or what's the setting of this. So let me spend a little bit of time giving you the setting and the background of chapter 5, and then from there um, help us understand what's going on. So I guess our first question, who's Belshazzar? That would be number one. Well, here's what's interesting. He's called King Belshazzar, and yet... From history, we know that there was never a king in Babylon called Belshazzar. Well, now, we've got a problem. And, of course, liberal theologians will come along and say, well, there you go. The Bible's false. Can't believe it. Discard the whole thing. Oh, but wait. History is our friend. It's true. There never was a king officially a king by the name of Belshazzar. You see, after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C., and and he was a great king, truly a great king. Probably one of the greatest kings in human history. After his death, numerous kings came and went in Babylon, and I won't go through all of the gory details there. We'll just kind of, just, there are a bunch of kings. You can do that research on your own. And then in 556, a guy by the name of Nabonidus came to rule over the, the empire of, of Babylon. You should note, Nabonidus was the final king of Babylon. All right? um, Babylon, the empire of Babylon came to an end in 539 B.C. And do you, did you recall what happened in the very last verse of this chapter? The Medes and the Persians take over. And so what we're looking at here is we are looking at the very last day of the Babylonian Empire. This is it. The very last day of the Babylonian Empire. We have insight as to what's going on inside of Babylon, inside of the city of Babylon on the very last day before the the Medo-Persian Empire basically takes over and becomes the new big man on campus. So Nabonidus was Babylon's final, final king, and he reigned up until 539 when uh, the Babylonian kingdom fell. Now, here's the thing about Nabonidus. Nabonidus really never, never really spent a whole lot of time in the city of Babylon. He was not... He spent a lot of time away. And so there's a lot of question as to why didn't he spend time in Babylon? Well, there's a, a number of different reasons, a, a number of different proposals. One proposal is that he wasn't very well liked, which is probably true. However, I don't think that's a reason for a king not to spend time in a city just because he's not well liked. We're going to learn Belshazzar wasn't very well liked either. So what was the reason? Well, I think the best reason uh, for Nabonidus not spending much time in the city of Babylon is because his religious affections were quite different from those of the, of the capital city. You see, Nabonidus worshipped the moon god. Her name, ironically enough, was Sin. You can't make this stuff up, right? So her name was Sin, and he worshipped the moon god, the moon goddess Sin, and she had a... Uh, a temple and kind of her main city was uh, in a place called Tima. It's in Arabia. And so Nabonidus set up a, a, a home in Tima, uh, some distance away from Babylon. See, in Babylon, they worship Marduk. 
And so because there was this conflict of worship, Nabonidus seemed to set up his, his headquarters in this city called Tema. And then he had to have somebody kind of in charge in Babylon. And so guess what he did? He appointed his son. Guess what his son's name was? Belshazzar to rule in Babylon during his absence. And so we have Belshazzar, who is co-regent, co-king with his father, Nabonidus, in the city of Babylon. This makes perfect sense, too, because you'll notice what does what does Belshazzar say when he says, whoever can interpret my dream is going to be what kind of ruler? What? third ruler. That's really strange because usually like Pharaoh and some of those guys say, whoever can do this great deed will be the second ruler, the second king, second in command. But Belshazzar didn't have that authority. Actually, he was the second in charge. Certainly not going to make somebody usurp him. So he places him third in charge. And so King Belshazzar, he was the co-regent with his father, and he was the one ruling in the city of Babylon. So we need to make sure we understand that background. You with me so far? So we've accounted for Belshazzar. We've uh, accounted for, uh, there's been some sort of a time gap here. Now, here's the other thing. Let me give you the setting. We actually know the exact date that this happened. All right. The exact date of chapter five is October 11th, 539 B.C. You're saying, well, how do you know that for certain? I know that for certain because on October 12th, 539 B.C., um, Babylon fell. This is the day before all that happened. And so chapter five actually happens 30 years after chapter four and 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. You with me? So guess what? This makes Daniel a pretty old guy, doesn't it? He's probably around 80, because you'll remember he was taken captive in 605 B.C. All right, so this is now, what, 39, 60, 65 years later, if he was 14, 15. He's in his 80s at this point. He's coming to the end of his life. So we have... This setting. Now, here's what we need to understand. The Medo-Persian Empire, um, and there are two kings, Darius and Cyrus. Darius is the king of the Medes, and Cyrus is the king of the Persians. And they are basically taking over everything. Um, They are defeating all of the cities of the Babylonian Empire. And in fact, King Nabonidus had recently just suffered a huge defeat just north of Babylon. In fact, I don't know if I brought my little pointer Maybe I have one. Maybe I don't. We'll see. Oh, I'll bet you the battery's dead. Well, so here's Babylon. Here's Tema, where uh, Nabonidus lived. And up here in Sippar, just above, about 50 miles north of Babylon, Nabonidus suffered a crushing defeat um, during this time. And with the fall of Sippar, all of the armies of the Medes and the Persians come down and surround Babylon. So Babylon is the last city. Once it goes, it's over. So the, uh, that's kind of what's going on. So Nabonidus has suffered this crushing defeat north of Babylon. He's on the run. The city of Babylon is surrounded by the Medo-Persian army. Now, here's the thing that's going on with Babylon. Babylon, they weren't idiots. They knew that eventually, someday, they're going to be attacked. So here's, here's what happened. When, when you attacked a city, you just basically didn't go and attack it. You set up a siege, right? So you, you surrounded the city, and then you just waited for everybody to starve to death. Well, the Babylonians knew this, and so what they did was they built their city with the Euphrates River running right through the middle of it, so they had a nice water supply. They also, um, historians and archaeologists, have discovered that they had about a three-year supply of food. So here's what you've got. You've got Babylon crumbling and falling. You've got the Medo-Persian army surrounded the, 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 the capital city of Babylon. However, you have Belshazzar sitting in his city 
knowing, listen, I got these high walls, probably 40 feet high, 21 feet wide. Uh, nobody's going to get in here. I got three years worth of food. I got a good water supply. I got really nothing to worry about at this point. That's our background. All right. So that's where we're going. Uh, I think with that now we can get an idea of uh, and, and interpret this passage of text properly. So now with all that going on, guess what Belshazzar does? Belshazzar, with the enemies and judgment sitting at the gate, Belshazzar throws a party. And probably this was a customary annual feast that was held on this day. And I think that's why the Persians and the Medes chose to attack on this day, because they knew that it was kind of an annual party and everybody would be drunk. So good time to attack a city when everybody is hungover. But Belshazzar is, so Belshazzar, with judgment imminent, setting right outside the gate, Belshazzar throws a party. He sees no need for urgency. He believes that he's well protected. He believes that he's well supplied. Meanwhile, death sits right outside the gate. Not only is he self-confident in his own abilities, not only is he self-confident in his own defenses, not only is he... So self-confident that he throws a party, he does something else. He makes, in his drunken state, he makes a command to call for the vessels from Yahweh's temple to be used in their drunken party. So he calls for the vessels from the Jerusalem temple to be used in this drunken orgy. You need to understand that This is a big-time act of defiance. No other king had ever done anything like this. And the reason why is at least other kings had some sort of uh, fear, if you will. It would be like somebody who doesn't believe in God but saying, I won't go go and rob that church, no way. You know, I may rob a house next to the church, but don't touch the church. Or I might burn a bunch of books, but I'd never burn a Bible. Kind of a superstitious type of fear. They had fear of those things. Nab or Belshazzar, go get me the temples from, go get me the vessels from Yahweh's house, and we are going to use them in our drunken party. This reminds me of a verse we find in Revelation chapter nine, verse twenty, which I have up here. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping the demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their sexual immorality or of their thefts. Do you notice the exact phrasing from the book of Daniel? John picks up and says, They did not give up worshiping the idols of gold and silver, bronze and stone and wood, and they cannot see and they cannot hear and they cannot walk. And and Belshazzar calls for these vessels to be used. And basically, they began to praise the gods of wood and stone and gold and silver. One might ask, why would Belshazzar do something like this? Well, you can say, well, he was drunk. Well, that would be one reason. But he's not the first drunk king to do something, or he's not the first drunk king, so why would he do something like this? I think the idea that fits with the context of this particular chapter is that Belshazzar is seeking to demonstrate the superiority of his God and to give assurance to his citizens. In other words, this is a deliberate act of defiance against Yahweh. Belshazzar was a very religious individual. He worshipped the gods of the Babylonian pantheon. He worshipped Marduk. And he is now giving a I don't want to say that. He is defying God Almighty. He knows what God has done. He knows what Yahweh has done in uh, 
in how he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe he's saying, you will never humble me. You will ne- this is a direct defiance of the power of Yahweh. And I wonder if perhaps even if he's, in other words, you may have humbled Nebuchadnezzar, but you will never humble me. At this point, I wonder if perhaps he's even heard the words of Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, and the words of Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, where Daniel predicts the downfall of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel says that the empire is going to come to an end. I wonder if he's read the words of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, 28, and Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, which speaks about Cyrus coming in and defeating the Medes, and the, or defeating the, the empire of Babylon. Cyrus is... Isaiah prophesied 150 years prior to this. And now there's a guy by the name of Cyrus who says that, and Isaiah says this guy Cyrus is going to defeat Babylon and now you've got a king by the name of Cyrus sitting right outside your gate. I wonder if any of this began to make sense. He knows the word of God and instead what he does is he thumbs his nose at God and says, bring me God's vessels and I will mock and defy the living God despite what he has said. This is an all-out defiant act against a holy God. Let me just give a brief summary of this. So here's what we have. We have judgment imminent. It's it's sitting right outside your gates. And with judgment imminent, Belshazzar throws a party and he begins to trust in his own strength to save him. Folks, I do not want you, I know you're not missing this point, but how many of you have friends? How many of you have relatives? How many of you sitting here are no different from Belshazzar? God has told us that judgment is coming. God has told us that it is appointed for men to die once and then after that the judgment The bottom line is there will be judgment. And how many people, knowing that judgment is imminent, right outside the gate, you know it, you've heard about it, instead you choose a drunken party, trusting in your own ability and your own strength to save you. Belshazzar is not all that different from where you and I may have been at one time, but by God's grace no longer are. Belshazzar is no different from maybe where some of you are right now this morning, and Belshazzar is no different from your family members, loved ones, and the people that you have breakfast with, and the people that you sit on committees with, and the people whom you work with. They mock God knowing that judgment is right outside the door. And with this going on, God in His mercy shows up. You see, all of a sudden, in this grand party with a thousand people, and by the way, this would have been a fairly small party. Um, Babylonians were known to have parties of about 15,000 people. So this is just a little tiny, intimate gathering of a thousand people. And in the midst of this party, a hand shows up and writes on the wall. That's where we get the phrase, see the handwriting on the wall. It comes from this particular chapter of text, but I won't spend any time there. And so all of a sudden, a hand shows up and writes a couple of words up on the, in the plaster on the wall. And of course, it's kind of a buzzkill for, um, can't believe I used that word in the sermon. <laughs> but it is certainly a reality check. For this drunken king and all of a sudden it says his knees go weak and his face goes pale and basically he just goes, oh my goodness, what's going on? So, a blind king does what a lost person does. He calls for his friends, blind guides, to give him help. He calls for his philosophers. He calls for his magicians. He calls for all of his his cabinet members and tell me what's going on. 
This is the blind leading the blind. So he calls for his wise men, which are, we're going to see provide no help whatsoever for him. And so they come in and they see the words and they have no idea what's going on. Now, we should note that I think I can be 99.999% certain they understood what the words said. It was written in Aramaic. That's what they spoke. They're educated people. They understood what these words meant or what they said. They did not understand what they meant. So reading the word of God was not a problem. These were God's words to these people. Really to Belshazzar. Reading them was not a problem. Understanding what they meant was hidden from them. So, quick summary of this section. That is that God declares his word to Belshazzar, but neither he nor his counselors understand the meaning of them. Belshazzar calls the wisest men to bring, to bring him insight into what's going on, but not even the wisest that, of men that money can buy can give him understanding of what God is saying. Folks, this just reminds me, there's a lot of people out there who read God's word. They can understand. They can put the letters and the sentences together. And they can read what it says. But the Bible tells us that the word of God is foolishness to those who are perishing. That only those who have... That it is that the word of God is foolishness to those who are blind. Let me turn with, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Prior to that, he's, Paul says this, he says, Listen, I came to you preaching the word of Christ, but... The, the rulers of this age didn't know what I was saying. If they understood the word of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But because they crucified Christ, they did not understand the word of Christ. And the reason they can't understand the word of Christ is because the word of God is spiritually discerned and nat- the natural man cannot understand the word of God. This is where Belshazzar is. He's a natural man. He can read the words and he can bring in all of the best theologians Money can purchase, but they do not have the mind of Christ. They, these things are spiritually discerned. It reminds me, I have a, a good friend of mine, and he's just like this brilliant academic guy, and he goes to all of these theological seminars and conferences, and, and some of them, even though they're Bible-based, he, he'll tell me, I think that I'm the only person who actually believes the Bible in the whole place. And so he goes and presents papers and he's like, all of these, these guys, these theologians, and I don't think any of them actually believe the Bible. I think me and maybe one or two others and a thousand people are the only people who actually believe the Bible. And so the point here is that there are academics out there. There are people who understand what the words say. They have no idea what they mean. Because the word of God is spiritually appraised. And the natural man cannot understand it. Belshazzar is in that place. Judgment is sitting right outside the door. God writes his word to him. And what does he do? He calls in his friends who are of no benefit whatsoever because they cannot understand or interpret what God is speaking. Fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, for Belshazzar, the truth is revealed. The queen hears about this. I actually think this is Nebuchadnezzar's widow, but that's another point. And she comes in and she says, Belshazzar, what's the problem? Don't you know your father and your forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, don't you know? He used to use this guy by the name of Daniel. Daniel's hanging out. You ought to call on him. He can tell you what's going on. And so Belshazzar um, 
it's interesting. He does, he's, not, he's not familiar with Daniel, but he goes and he calls for Daniel and he tells Daniel this. He says, Daniel, I'll tell you what, if you can tell me what's going on, I understand that you're good at this. If you can tell me what's going on, I'm going to give you a robe of purple and a lot of riches and I'm going to make you third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel basically says, keep your riches for yourself. I think two reasons why Daniel says, keep your riches for yourself. Number one, I'm not doing this for a bribe. And number two, Daniel also knows exactly what he wrote. He knows that the Medo-Persians are going to defeat Babylon. He knows that Cyrus is the king by which all of the exiles are going to go free. Cyrus is right outside the gate. He's going, this kingdom is going to last like maybe another couple hours. Whatever promotion I get is not a long-lasting promotion. Daniel's also about 80 years old. He's like, what, what are you going to give me? Really? But anyways, that's offered, and, and, and Daniel says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do the interpretation for you no matter what, but you can keep your stuff. And these are his words, and these are words of judgment, and we do well to listen to them. First of all, Daniel gives a history lesson to Belshazzar. It's interesting, because Belshazzar, all he wants is, tell me what those words say and tell me what they mean. And Daniel being 80 years old and not swayed by anybody, says, I'm going to give you a message of judgment. What are you going to do? Kill me? Nebuchadnezzar already tried that. It doesn't work. And he says this, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, your forefather, he was a great king and God humbled him. He was probably one of the greatest kings who ever lived and yet God had him bowing his knee, lifting his eyes up to the Most High God. God gave him power and God took away that power. Nebuchadnezzar, your father, thought he was the ultimate sovereign and God intervened in his life and revealed to him, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are not sovereign. I, God of heaven, am the sovereign of the universe. And whatever power, whatever whatever authority, whatever abilities you may have, it is all derived and it comes from me. He was not the ultimate sovereign. And this Nebuchadnezzar failed to humble himself. He refused to humble himself. He lifted up himself. And then one day, God struck him down and basically gave him the mind of an animal, made him subhuman. And he was subhuman for seven years. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, and my reason returned to me and I lifted my eyes to heaven and I acknowledge that God is God most high and that he is the one who does great things and he is the ruler of the universe. That's what your father knew. And here's the thing, Belshazzar, the second word of judgment, this divine accusation. I love this. It says, you, his son, Belshazzar, you, his son. There's a mocking tone in this. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, God humbled him. And you, his son? Nebuchadnezzar was a great man. You're his son. You're no no Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. And if God can bring down a great man like Nebuchadnezzar and humble him and cause him to call upon the name of the Lord, you're no Nebuchadnezzar. God will humble you as well. You knew what happened. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and yet you remain in your pride. You've raised yourself up before the living God and he will bring you down. You are not ignorant of what God does. You have seen God's power. You know about God's power and yet you continue to to exalt yourself. If God can bring down a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, he can bring you down as well. And you know there is nothing hidden. You are not ignorant of what God is doing. Now, divine judgment. I'll read the words for you. And literally they mean this. Numbered, numbered, weighed and divided. That's what those words mean. And then he interprets them. You want to know what they mean? Here's what they mean, Bel, Shazar. Numbered, numbered. Twice he says it, I think, for emphasis and to show the certainty that your days are numbered. In fact, he's at the end of them. He doesn't know it yet. He's at the very last day. Your days are numbered. 
See, God knows the number of days that you and I have. He knows every single number of breaths you will take. Numbered, numbered. Your days are numbered, Belshazzar. Weighed. You've been weighed in the balance and found lacking. All of your wealth and all of your power and all of your concubines and all of your wives and all of your riches and everything that you have, you add it all up and you are found lacking. You will stand before a holy God and you will not measure up. Your days are numbered and you'll stand before God and you will not measure up, Belshazzar. That's what it means. Finally, divided. Your kingdom is now divided. It's coming to an end and it's going to be given to the Medo-Persian Empire. Let me say this. This may be one of the greatest evangelistic sermons in all of Scripture. This is an amazing sermon. So, when we think about the great sermons, and of course, Sermon on the Mount by Jesus is the greatest sermon ever. Probably, well, tied for that then would be the Olivet Discourse. But then, of human, non-Jesus sermons, probably Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost may have been, like, way up there. This one here, maybe one of the greatest sermons ever preached, right up there with Peter's. This is one of judgment. Here's what he says. Belshazzar, you've seen with your own eyes what the mighty hand of God can do, and yet you refuse to humble himself. You have the word of God spoken clearly to you, and you refuse to humble yourself. And you, Instead, you continue to mock him and defy him. You can deliberately choose idols of men's hands and lift them up. You choose the philosophies of this world as your security and your days have been numbered and you've been weighed in the balance and you have, your kingdom is divided. You, now, Belshazzar, have been judged. There is no hope for you. And then... We come to the place where this statue is decapitated. You see, on October 12, 539 B.C., the Medo-Persian armies came in to the city of Babylon and defeated it. And here's how they did it. It's really interesting. Because remember, they had the river Euphrates running under the walls and they thought we got a nice water supply. And so what they, the Medo-Persian Empire did was they just simply diverted the the Euphrates River, and when the water dried up, they walked right in underneath the walls. From what some of the historians, uh, ancient historians tell us, there was very little resistance, if any resistance, um, perhaps partly because Belshazzar was not liked. I think some some historians even say that people were cheering when the Medo-Persians came in, going, man, Belshazzar's over there. (laughs) We'll take you to him. And he's drunk and hung over, and so they slay Belshazzar and some of his nobles and on October 12, 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire fell. The head of gold that Nebuchadnezzar saw has been crushed. And a new empire, by the way, an empire commissioned by God. God raised up Babylon and God took it down. God now raised up the Medo-Persian Empire and by the way, we'll see him take that one down too. He raises kingdoms and he deposes kingdoms. He raises kings and he deposes kings. The Babylonian Empire, the head of gold, comes to an end and a new empire is raised up by God. Let me just spend a little bit of time on this conclusion because I think we need to put this all together and see what does this mean for us. This is not just an ancient history lesson. This is incredibly applicable to you and to me. First of all, let me exhort you and assure you that judgment is right outside the door. Judgment is imminent. Every single one of you will stand before a holy God. Every single one of us will stand before a holy God. And your days are numbered. I don't know if you have many days left or perhaps this is your last day. All of your days are numbered and you will stand before a holy God. And if you think for a moment that any ability within yourself is going to protect you from that day, you are sorely mistaken. Belshazzar had everything you could want. He had 
material wealth. He could fulfill every carnal desire that he wanted. He had people at his beck and call. He had security all about him, and his days were numbered. And despite all of that he had, on that day, God struck him down. You have no idea. On February 2nd, my wife was driving home from Phoenix, and the car struck her at 70 miles an hour. She was going about 65. She survived. But I tell you right now, it's in an instant. And you could, she could have been gone just like that. In an instant. Another inch, one way or another, she's gone. You have no idea what's going to happen to you when you walk out of this place. You have no idea what your next heartbeat is even going to take place. Judgment is sitting at the door. It is imminent. And if you think for a moment that you and your abilities can prolong it, and people say, oh, I know, judgment's coming. Yeah, I understand that, but I'm going to throw a party because then when I see judgment coming, then on the very last second, I'm going to repent and I'll come to God. You have no idea. To throw a party when judgment is imminent is, is foolishness. This is what Belshazzar did. So many choose to revel in their idolatry. They will worship the idols of men's hands and they will heed to the advice of their blind philosophers. And because they are blind, they cannot understand the word of God. And so we listen to people who don't have the spirit of God interpret the word of God and think we're going to be enlightened. Are you kidding me? When Oprah gives you spiritual advice and you listen to that, Are you joking me? When people who don't even have the Spirit of God give you religious advice and you think, oh, well, that sounds good, blind guides, and they will lead you into a pit. This is what Belshazzar relied upon. Didn't go well for him. I don't know when judgment will come to your household, but it will come. You will stand before God. Here's the other beautiful part. God sends his missionaries to explain clearly what God has spoken. Belshazzar knew. He'd already known. But if you don't know, I've explained it to you today. None of us have any excuse. We will all walk out of here with the knowledge that God is speaking to you and calling from people everywhere to repent for God has fixed a day of judgment. And so I call you right now, if you are not a follower of Christ, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. It is for you to repent and call upon the name of the Lord, and he will have mercy on your soul. God sends his missionaries to clearly explain what God has spoken. If I have not been clear, come and speak with me, and I will work with you until it is abundantly clear. But understand this, you will be without excuse. Now here's the thing. I think the whole book of Daniel, is, or at least the whole first section of Daniel, is designed to draw our attention to these two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Everything is designed to show us there are two kings, both of them reigning, both of them claim to be sovereign, both of them come to the realization they are not sovereign, that God is sovereign. But here's the thing, with Nebuchadnezzar, God showed him mercy gave him seven years, to re- gave him a year to repent and seven years of judgment and then God uh, gave reason back to him. And Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes to heaven and declared that God is the Most High. Belshazzar had about an hour. We dare not presume upon the grace of God that God has shown others. You can say, yeah, well, I've got a friend and he did all of these things and he, you know, God didn't judge him and I don't know, I did some pretty horrible things last week and God didn't strike me down. How dare you presume upon God's grace? Because God did not strike you down is not a, an excuse for you to say, oh, I can go on sinning willfully. No, if God did not strike you down because of your rebellion last week, it is a it is, a me, it is a cause for you to fall on your knees and say, have mercy upon me, Lord, a sinner. Because God has shown you grace. God has shown you mercy. And he's given you another week. He's given you another day. Now, call upon the name of the Lord. God sent Daniel 
as an act of grace, as an act of mercy, God sent his hand to write on the plaster of the wall as giving Belshazzar his word. It is an act of mercy and Belshazzar spurned it. The word of God is here. Do not spurn God's word. Finally, I will close this passage of text as I began it. God has sent forth his word. He's proclaimed it. And Jesus talked about a rich man who thought he had everything under control. But God said to that rich man, you fool, tonight your very soul is required of you. Let's pray. Father, I know that you've given us your word. And we see, last week we see your message of grace how you had mercy on this king. Today we see, Father God, swift judgment. Two kings, two places. Father, we ask that we would not presume upon your grace, but that we would fall at your feet. Lord, sometimes we think we're the king of our own lives. But as we've learned, all kings have their kingship. Their their kingdom is derived. It comes from you. Whatever we have, whatever power, whatever authority, whatever place, whatever skills, whatever talents, whatever wealth, whatever resources we may have, it all comes from you. And you are calling now for us to repent and to call upon your name, to realize that those things come from you. They are not from ourselves. And so we are to humble ourselves and call upon you. And the one who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, we recognize that judgment is right outside the door. We also recognize that your son bore our judgment on the cross at Calvary. I pray, Father God, that you would speak to our hearts. And if there are any today in this place who happen to hear it online, who have not repented and called upon the name of the Lord, that they would do so now. crying out to a holy and merciful God who will in no way cast them out if they will call upon him. For you are merciful and you are not only just but the justifier. So I pray, Father God, that you would speak to our hearts. We have, been, we have heard your word, so have mercy upon us. In Christ's name, amen.